0: Our scripture passage this morning is from Romans, chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So we're going to begin Romans, and I just want to, just a brief confession uh, I've avoided this book only because of its uh, immensity, it's, uh, it's a masterpiece in terms of its theological study, it's, uh, it's really a, a book of superlatives, it's the longest, it's the most theological, it's the most influential, uh, it, it's just an incredible book, its impact has been immense on the lives of the saints throughout the years. Augustine would be one. Uh, he had that moment of spiritual crisis in the garden of the place that he lived. He was on the ground, weeping. and He heard that small voice. This is back in the fourth century. A, a voice of a child saying, take up and read, take up and read. And, and he moves to get the scroll on the bench near him, and he opens it. Right to Romans 14, <clears throat> and he reads these words. Not in riots and drunken parties, or Romans 13, excuse me, not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and robbery, but put on the Lord Christ and make no provision for the flesh in its lust. And here's what he says. I neither wished nor needed to read further. At once with the words of this sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. Or go more than a thousand years later to Martin Luther. Martin Luther, of course, struggling over the righteousness of God as it applied wrath to his life of sin. And yet he uh, casts his eyes upon Romans 1, 16 and 17, the passage read. and, And his words are simply this. He says, night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth. That the righteousness of God is that righteousness, whereby through grace and sheer mercy He justifies us by faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. So the, the impact on Romans on the lives of the saints has been profound. Even John Calvin writes: If we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. That's really my hope and prayer for us today, is that as we begin this study on Romans, which will take us a good while, we'll have breaks in between, so we won't read it just straight through, but my prayer is that it will impact you, it will change you, it will open your eyes to these treasures of of Scripture. The way we're going to do it is we're going to Look at it in three steps today. We're just going to do an overview. So three steps. The first step is going to be just the nuts and bolts. That's the first step, nuts and bolts. Who wrote it, why, when kind of thing. And and after we talk about the nuts and bolts, we're just going to look at the passage read, which is Romans 1, 16 and 17. It's kind of a summary of the whole book. And then we'll look at that in a little bit of detail. And then we'll look at how he kind of unfolds this idea through the rest of the book. And I'll take you on a quick, high-level flight over what this book is in terms of its sections and how the gospel is explained. So the first step is just going to be the nuts and bolts, who, why, and when kind of thing. And then the second part will be looking at Romans 1. And then the third step will be looking at the entire book in one fell swoop. So the nuts and bolts of this. Um, It's really beyond uh, few questions, the authorship being Paul, Paul being the writer, probably wrote it. In, uh, from Greece, and uh, wrote it from Greece as he was on his way to Jerusalem, probably around 57 AD. And the reason we know this is because in Acts 20, to 3 he's speaking from Greece, saying he's going to Jerusalem with the gift of money that the Gentile church has raised for the beleaguered saints in Jerusalem, and that's echoed in Romans 15. He's explaining, so we know where he is on his journey. He's about to begin his third and final missionary journey. Now, unlike the other letters that Paul wrote, he didn't know this church. He had never met this church. Um, Most churches, obviously, that he wrote to, he had helped plant, but not this church. So the question comes up, well, who planted the church? Well, most believe that it was probably planted by, by Jewish converts that were in Jerusalem when Peter preached. Remember, Peter preached, the Spirit came down, he preached about the gospel, Christ being raised, and many came to believe, and it says that there were people from Rome listening to him preach. The Jewish converts went back planted the church. But why would Paul be writing to them? Well, I, I think Paul's writing to them a number of reasons why it could be. The old school would say that Paul was writing kind of a systematic theology of the faith. This is what we believe about the Christian faith, and he's going to put it all in one document. And that could be true. It definitely has truth in it. I don't think it's the best expression, and the reason I say that is because he doesn't speak about the Lord's Supper. He doesn't speak about the nature of the church. He doesn't speak, or speaks very little about the return of Christ. Those would be big topics in any systematic theology. Uh, Others say that Paul's writing kind of a missionary letter. You find in Romans 15, Paul's asking for their material help to get the gospel to Spain because it had not gone there. And so he's writing, kind of introducing himself, introducing his theology, saying, I'm orthodox, seeking their support so they might join in the work to get the gospel to Spain. And that's clearly there in 15. Still others would say, well, no, he wrote it to kind of reconcile this Jewish-Christian tension this Jewish Christian and the Gentile Christians, there was tension. See, the Jewish converts probably planted the church, Uh, but then in 49, Claudius, the emperor, expelled all the Jews out of Rome. He expelled them all out of Rome. And so the Gentiles began to take leadership of the church. Years later, the the Jews were allowed back into Rome. They came back to the church, but it had changed. There's cultural tensions that exist between Gentiles and Jews, and Paul's seeking to resolve that. That's chapter 14, when he talks about the stronger and the weaker brother. Those are all good reasons, and those are all being accomplished as you read Romans. But let me give you a higher level reason, I think. Not higher as't better, but kind of wraps them up. I think what Paul's doing is, he's writing to these Christians in Rome to encourage them in the gospel. He wants them to know the depth and the profundity of the gospel. Now, the reason I say that is because in the first chapter, verse 15, we read Paul say, or Paul says, I'm eager to come and preach the gospel to you. Now, if you think in your mind that the gospel is just a message from God that justifies us, forgives us, and just saves us, and then we get on with life and sanctification, you'd be having too small of a gospel. They were already believers. So why would he want to come and preach the gospel to these already believers? Well, because the gospel is rich. It's deep. He wants to unpack the gospel so that they see the beauty and the glory of God and their lives begin to reflect that. He wants to unfold for them all that is contained in the gospel. I think that's, that's really the overarching reason. That's what we're going to see here. We're going to see that he's going to unfold the gospel. And, and I just want to stop for a minute and, and, and help you to recognize, you know, at this point, Paul's probably three, maybe four years from death. He's an older man. He's gone through incredible hardships. He's not slowing down. I, I mean, he's an older man who is still striving for the faith of the gospel in the saints. He's not just striving. He's planning another missionary journey. So those of us who are maturing along in life, this is a time of great work. This is not a time to sit back and those who are young and strong and have great zealousness, I'm thankful for that. I love seeing a new generation of Christians begin to rise up, these 20-somethings who are excited about the gospel and they're ready to dedicate themselves. I love that. But I tell you, those of you who are growing older, this is a time of rich ministry. This is a time of active ministry. Do not do not scale back as you see those young scale forward. Both. We need to strive for the faith of the gospel. I'm just impressed Paul is this zealous at the end of his life. That's what I pray for ourselves, that we would be so zealous. So that's kind of the nuts and bolts. That's the first step. The nuts and bolts are, Paul wrote it around 57 AD to a church encouraging them to dive deep into the gospel. Okay, but what is this gospel? Well, if 15, he's eager to preach it. In 16 and 17, he explains the gospel, and that's what Melanie read for us. And when we read this gospel, that we're not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. You, know, you notice here that Paul's kind of being honest with us. You know the temptation is to be ashamed of the gospel. now why might he have been ashamed? Well, I think the same reason we I mean the gospel's foolishness to the world. It makes no sense. You want me to believe that a man came down and died for me? I, I, I mean the message itself seems foolish to people that are intellectual or morally superior. Why would I need this? I can't really believe that and, and yet and yet Paul's admitting, I'm not ashamed of it, and the reason the way he's able to overcome the temptation to being ashamed is that he knows that the gospel has the power to save. The gospel has the power to deliver us from the wrath of God, from our sin. Though we be heavy laden with sin, God's power is able to rescue us from the darkness in which we've fallen. And this power, by the way, is for all, Jew and Gentile. It's not God's salvation is not to this little small tribal group or some ethnic group. No, it's to Jew and to Gentile. And this salvation that he comes to bring is not just to justify us from sins. It's not just to bring forgiveness so that we can go on living and striving. No, the gospel is speaking not just to a salvation from sin, but bringing us to a final victory that the gospel will never finish with the gospel. It will save us to the uttermost. We're going to be saved fully, completely, through this gospel. So not only do we see that this gospel has the power of God to save, but we see how it saves. Look in 17, it explains how he will save us. He says, for, that's that's a, a reason, he's giving us a reason, for in it, or it would be the antecedent, the gospel. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Now, there has been no small amount of ink spilt on this verse alone. Many different views on what is this righteousness. Is it, is it just the display of God's attribute of holiness? Uh, many people have seen it that way. Is it more God's covenantal faithfulness to kind of save a people? So in the saving action of God, he's displaying his faithfulness to the covenant. Well, those both, I think, have value to him. But I think above those is the righteousness of God revealed is this. That in Christ, God is revealing to us, he's displaying to us a way, a way to be made right with God. Uh, That that our posture, our status changes. We we go from being condemned and guilty, or guilty and condemned, and now we're made innocent and pardoned. Uh, that, That in Christ, God has provided a way that our status can change. We're no longer an enemy of God, but now we're a friend. We're a child of God. And this is all through the gospel. So that God has revealed in Christ a way to be declared righteous so that we can now have that enmity with God removed. John Stott says it this way, the righteousness of God is a status which God requires if we are ever to stand before him. He achieves this for us by the atoning sacrifice of the cross offered to us by faith. Or another great scholar, Cranfield, writes, In the gospel, a righteous status before God is a gift revealed and offered to us by faith. In other words, Jesus coming in the flesh, living among us, living perfectly, perfectly to God, bearing our sin, bearing the curse, bearing the very wrath of God for our sin, that in faith, in Christ and his work, We are now declared beloved, forgiven, accepted, innocent, no longer condemned, all resting in Christ. So this gospel that saves is through Christ, but it's received by faith. You notice what he says in 17. For in it, that is in the gospel, a righteousness has been revealed from faith for faith. And that's an expression for it's entirely of faith. From first to last. And and that's why I think he references Habakkuk there. He's showing us not only that our gospel is not a New Testament message. It's throughout the scriptures. uh, But we we are saved by faith and we live in faith forever. That we're no longer... You're not going to be saved. You're not going to be delivered from your sins by faith. And now... When we get at the work of sanctification, we've got to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and really start. No, we live from faith from first to last. It is a life of faith that we live. This is what brought Martin Luther, the great reformer in the 16th century, such peace. Because he he says in his writings that he hated the righteousness of God. Because the righteousness of God did nothing but spell wrath to him who was unrighteous. How can you stand before the absolute holy righteousness of God when you and I both know we all bear unrighteousness? But in Christ, that righteousness of God is made for us now an offer of peace through faith in Christ. See, what Paul's doing here is I think he wants to dive us deeper into what we have received. When Paul was writing to these Romans, he wanted them to know this is what you already have. This is what he's already done. You can now live in light of what has taken place. He's driving us deeper into the beauty of the gospel. See, a lot of times I think we think of the gospel like we think of the letters of the alphabet. You know, when you're a kid, you learn the letters A, B, C, D. That's all I learned up to there. But you you, you learn these letters and and you realize that learning the, the letters is so that you can read. Now, once you read, you don't worry about the letters anymore. If you walk back into a first or second grade classroom and you see the letters up there, you think that's childish. We don't deal with letters anymore. We deal with words. We move on from letters. But we we don't move on from the gospel. We'll never move on from the gospel. God wants to drive us deeper and deeper and deeper into this profound mystery which he has now revealed to us. It's forever going to feed us with joy. In, in, In a way, it's kind of like a marriage. You know, at marriage, so we get married, there's a wedding, there's a consummation of the marriage. But it's not intended to just remain at that level. A a marriage is intended to deepen in love and devotion and sacrifice and service to one another. It's not intended to be the same. but It's the same marriage, but it's a different marriage. It's a deepened marriage. You understand one another. You love one another. You know, Carol and I just celebrated our 32nd on December 28th. And when we got married in 85, to where we are now, I I mean, some of you know, because you've known me for a number of years, it's profoundly different. The love and the devotion and the sacrifice and the desire to serve, the desire to reconcile. We get our horns crossed every now and then when she does something wrong. (laughs) But I'm always gracious and willing to forgive her and to accept her back. She can come back in the house and stay. She's not here, of course. I may change that in the second service. We'll make sure the second service gets on the podcast. <laughs> but, 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 but there's a deepening. There's a love that, that you have for one another. That's the idea of the gospel, that we're diving deeper and deeper and deeper. It's not something known and now moved on like the letter of the alphabet. That's why I think he's driving it. And that's what he's going to do now. So this is kind of the second step, the gospel, 16 and 17. He's going to dive deeper in it, and that's what the rest of Romans is for. This is really the third step of understanding Romans. You know, The first step was just the nuts and bolts. The second step is is Romans 1, 16 and 17. We just went through that. The third step, though, is diving deeper. He's going to unfold it for us. And here's how I want to do it, because it's such a big book. I want to give you four truths of how he's going to unfold it. And I'm going to do it in the way that the book is written. Because I had asked you, if many, I hope many of you were able to read it uh, before coming here on Sunday. It'll take you one hour to read through the book of Romans. If you haven't, I would ask you to do it this week. We won't be covering the whole book next week, but it'll give you a lay of the land. So here's what I think he unfolds about the gospel in the book of Romans. The first thing he says is this. He says that the gospel solves our greatest problem. The gospel solves our greatest problem. It's the solution to that which is the greatest problem we face. And we see this really in the first three chapters, and I would say four. Four is an example of what he does in the first three. But in the first three, it's talking about the nature of sin, that we all are condemned by our sin. You notice in the very next verse, Paul writes in Romans 18, If your Bible's open, look at it. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So Paul jumps into the writing of his book with the problem. The problem is God's wrath has been revealed. Now, he says that in light of 17, the righteousness of God has been revealed, but so has the wrath so has the wrath been revealed. And he's saying you all stand under condemnation and judgment because of our sin. All of us do. Now in Romans 1, 2, and 3, he's going to speak to the Gentile. They have the wrath of God revealed against their sin. And, and the Jew, The Jew, though he has the law, has broken the law, the wrath of God is against him as well. All are condemned. Now we're all condemned by our own sin. Now don't think for a minute that sin is just the breaking of some set of rules that you heard. It's much more profound than that. It's much more dynamic than that. Uh, Our sin, what we are being condemned over, is ultimately this cosmic dishonor and ingratitude. Uh, Why? Well, he tells us in verse 19 of the first chapter, he says this, he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature. They've all been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So they are without, we are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They didn't give thanks to him. Isn't that funny? Dishonor and ingratitude are the things that we are condemned under. And ingratitude to God, a lack of thankfulness. I mean, how many years of your life did you live being unthankful to God? Uh, I mean, how, Now, are you grateful to him every day when you wake up? He's the creator. He's created all things. We know that. And, and, yet, and yet, have we given him thanks for all the achievements and the accomplishments that we've done, for all the things that we've seen happen in life, all the progression we've made? Does he always get the credit for that? Does he always receive thanksgiving and honor for who he is and what he's done? For many of us, not. This is the exchanging of the glory of God for the glory of creation. This is a forgetting of God, living in ingratitude before God. Tim Keller brought up a great illustration. You know, m- many of us, uh, and this is, by the way, for the non-religious and the religious. You know, The religious can actually be trying to live like God's told them to do, but still live with ingratitude. They can still be trying to do the right things but there's no honor and gratitude for God. Listen to this example. It just, it just hit me between the eyes. He says, imagine a woman, a poor widow with an only son. She teaches him how she wants him to live, to always tell the truth, to work hard, to help the poor. She makes very little money, but with her meager savings, she's able to put him through college. Imagine that when he graduates, he hardly ever speaks to her again. He occasionally sends her a Christmas card, but he doesn't visit her. He won't answer her phone calls or letters. He doesn't speak to her but he lives just like she taught him, honestly, industriously, charitably. Would we say that this was acceptable? Would we say that he was a good son? No. We might say he was a jerk, or we might say what we're really thinking, he's wicked. All that she did for him, and he can't even call her. But how many of us have lived with ingratitude before God for much of our lives, never thanking him Never honoring him, never considering him—that everything we have has been given. We all stand under the condemnation of dishonor, and cosmic ingratitude to God. It and and in Romans three, all the way to three twenty, leads us to a point of great despair. Three twenty is just a devastating verse. By the works of the law, no one will be justified by God. No one can do it. So we're like, well, what do we do? We're like the we're like the men in... Acts chapter 2, they were cut to the heart. What should we do? Well, Paul tells us. And and the the cliff of despair in 320 is met by the grace of God in 321 when he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest. It's incredible. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, but now that adversative is just life-giving. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest. How? Well, in Christ, and, and this is kind of, 321 all the way to 26 is a building of what I've just explained in 1 16 and 17. Let me read it for you. He says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ, whom God put forward. God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So that's how that the gospel is a solution to our problems. Our problems, we're under the wrath of God. But the solution is that he has put forward Christ, who we by faith grasp, and he has satisfied God. He has satisfied God by bearing our sin and by bearing our wrath. So now God is both just in punishing sin, and he's the justifier He justifies us. He declares us righteous. We now have a solution to our problem. And it is through faith in one and only Jesus Christ. That's the first message. The gospel is a solution to our problems in chapters one through three. And Abraham, by the way, in chapter four will be an example of this justification. Now, does this square with your assessment of life? I mean, do you see this sin as our greatest problem? Or would you rather say it's, lack of education, or it's the just general injustice of the world. Do you see that the wrath of God is the greatest problem over our ingratitude and our dishonor? You know, many of us, when we talk about the nature of sin, it really is becoming a kind of a a passe idea now, but when we talk about the nature of sin, we tend to deny it or justify it. And many of us have just moved, not many of us per se, maybe not you, but others. We deny it and just, we've removed sin as a moral category. It's just not there. We may call it evil, we may call it injustice, but we don't say that there is sin against God. In fact, in a recent survey, only 17% of Americans say that sin is against God. Now, they say that sin exists, but it's more of a horizontal dynamic. It's more of an effect on how we hurt one another. But we don't, we don't admit, we don't believe that sin is against God. And I think this is proved out, really, in the way you look at society. I mean, you have people that have struggles. We all do. And we're turning to these self-help books. We're, tending, we're turning to therapy. In other words, we don't see the problem as fundamental to who we are with God. We see the problem as just... We need an adjustment to our character, and so this book will help me do this, or this person can give me counsel on this. I'm not disparaging therapy or books, per se. I'm just saying that it may reveal that we see the problem is we just need some tinkering with our being, as opposed to we need something more radical. We need something like, I I probably need to be born again. In other words, there's something so fundamentally wrong with me before God that I need to be reborn. And I think that's what. when we deny sin, we forget that. But, but some of us don't deny it. Some of us justify it. So we look at our lives and we look at the struggles we're having, but we tend to move right towards self-justification. Well, it was consensual or nobody was hurt or well, you would have done the same thing if you were in my shoes. We, we tend to justify our sin. We don't deal with it as a problem Regarding our marriages and our parenting and our families, we don't look at our sin. we look at the circumstances around our lives, and we justify ourselves. You know One author said it this way. he says, "Self-righteousness is the deepest impulse of a fallen human heart. Self-righteousness is the deepest impulse of a fallen human heart. We want to extricate ourselves from guilt. By justification, we justify ourselves. Again, missing the reality that we're under the wrath of God. We need Christ. Now, you know, many of you have heard the question before that if you were to die today, and we all know that we're going to die one day, so let's just, that's on the table. We, we live with white sheets and we don't see death like they used to 100 years ago. We're all going to die one day. But if you were to die today and God were to say to you, why? should you be drawn into the glories of heaven? What would be your first answer? Would it be who you are or what you've done or you went to church or you gave money or you were involved in a ministry? What would you say? Because in that would, would at least relate to you where you rest in your hope. So, see, self-justification is speaking about what I've done or what I haven't done or how good I've been. But, but, but the Christian faith teaches That, no, our justification comes from what Christ has done for us and who he is for us before the Father. And this is why he writes at the end of chapter 3, he says in 27, he says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. We don't boast. We can't boast. Why? Because he has done it all. And so that's what the gospel, the gospel is the solution to our greatest problem. The problem is we're under the wrath of God due to our ingratitude. And yet God in mercy has provided for us a way to be declared righteous before him that we can now be a friend of God and no longer an enemy. That's in the first four chapters. Okay, the second truth that we see about the gospel. The gospel offers us hope in this life. You have hope in this life, even in the midst of your struggles. And we see this in verses, or chapters 5 through 8. It's the next section, 5 through 8. It begins with a great line. Paul just starts out in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace With God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. For the Christian who understands that they've been under the wrath of God, but now has the peace with God, that is good news. That's hope. You now have peace and righteousness and joy with God. That helps us to live. If you understand the wrath of God, to wake up in the morning and know that there is peace between you and the Creator, that's very good news. But there's more. He begins to move through in chapter 5 that the old life you had in Adam where you were bound by sin, you're now drawn into a union with Christ. You now are in union with Christ and you can now overcome sin because Christ has defeated the power of sin. That's what we find in in chapter 6. This union with Christ leads to us walking in holiness. He says, if you've died to sin, would you continue in it any longer? No, he's calling us to live in holiness. That's the whole idea of baptism. That's why Paul puts baptism right in chapter 6. In baptism, you're going down into the water. You're going down into the grave. You're dying to the old man. You're dying to Adam in you. And you come out of the water. And the water runs off you. And you're now living in union with your husband. You're betrothed to Christ. And so your life begins to look different. This is, giving you, this is going to give us hope. When we go through this section, we're going to see about the power of Christ in us. But not just that. We've been liberated from the bondage of sin. Chapter 7, we've been liberated from the law. The law is no longer accusing us of failure because we've been forgiven. And, and, and then it goes on in chapter 8 that not only have we been liberated in union with Christ, it's all through the power of the Spirit. The Spirit's now given to us whole chapter 8 is the Spirit is given to us that we might walk in the ways of God by the Spirit's power. And then the Spirit rem- um, prepares us for the glory that awaits us. The earth is groaning for redemption, so ought we to be. Because there's going to be a day where the Spirit brings us to the Father, is going to renew our bodies, and is going to bring us into the glory that is now ours because of our union with Christ. All these things, both the present power of the Spirit, the future glories that we'll have through the Spirit, all these are to give us hope in this life. I mean, think about it. Romans 8 has probably one of the most profound passages. In Romans eight thirty two, But he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously? I love that. He didn't have to say it. Graciously give us all things. We have all things. And then he goes on at the very end. He says, For I'm convinced that neither life nor death, nor angels nor demons, nor things present nor things to come, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is profound hope for this life. Even though many of us right now are going through struggles. And and even the struggles are going to work for his glory. So, So this section here, the gospel gives us hope. When we, when we study it, uh, we're going to be learning how to be a Christian with one foot in the world of Adam and one foot in the world of the Spirit. And there's a tension, no doubt. Uh, there's a tension. I think even Scott alluded to it in his prayer. There's a civil war going on within our souls. We, we don't do that which we want to do, Paul says in Romans 7, and, and, we, and we do that which we don't want to do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? So there's that civil war in our souls. But the spirit is ever moving to conform us more and more to, his, to the image of Christ. And even the problems that you have. Uh, God is going to work those through his spirit into your life, moving you to glory. He says that right in Romans 8 again. All things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Do you know the hope that gives? When you get just the waters right there, I mean, you're just about not able to breathe, and you're able to say, but he's going to work this out. The things are not good, but what he will do with these things will be good, and I'll thank him for it one day. That has carried more saints across the finish line strong. than I, I don't know, that, that's one key verse. It can be abused, no doubt, but if held truthfully and clearly, it, it sustains us when life is really hard. Because he will lead me through this, and I will be better because of it, and I'll thank him for it one day. So it gives us hope in this life. Uh, There's the nuts and bolts, you know. There's the the gospel is a solution for our problems, but right now it gives us hope. And in Romans five to eight, we should we should take we should grow wings and fly in that section. But the gospel does more. The gospel also. Answers our theological difficulties. The gospel answers our theological difficulties. You see this in Romans chapter 9. 9, 10, and 11. These are very confusing chapters. What's happening here? You know, Paul is, is almost, you know, we talked about the justification of men before God. Paul almost seems to be justifying God before men. He almost seems to be defending God before men. Why? Well, here's what's happening in 9 to 11. Uh, Paul is explaining why Israel didn't come to faith. Why did the people of God for whom the Messiah came reject him? He's saying, did God fail? Did God's word fail? Now, he just told the Christians in in chapter 8, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God, and yet we got Israel, and Israel's rejected their God. So what do we do with that? How do we handle that? And Paul's going to explain, he's going to unpack, that actually the rejection of Israel... Was part of God's eternal plan. That the hardening of Israel is what draws the Gentiles, i.e., you and me, into the gospel. And then through the Gentiles coming into faith, it's going to create envy and desire of Israel coming to faith in their Messiah. That this is all part of God's plan. In these chapters, Paul's going to untangle the theological questions we have, such as why do some believe? And some don't. So you have a sibling. You believe, they don't. Why? Why do you believe Christ? And they don't. He's going to answer those. He's going to reconcile. How does the law relate to the gospel? How does the Old Testament relate to the New Testament? Are these questions for you? They're questions for me. They've been questions for Christians throughout the ages. How do you relate the people of Israel, the ethnic Israel, with the people of God in the church? What's the relationship there? He begins to untangle these things. And what he's doing is he's helping us understand the plan of God is so glorious. That's why at the end of this section, the end of 11, the passage that Jeremy read in chapter 11, verses 33 to 36, he says this. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory. How can we trace it out? We can know it truly, but we can't know it fully. So so the gospel untangles these theological difficulties. And then last, uh, the gospel will transform us. As we dive deeper into the gospel, our lives will change. They will transform us. There's a major pivot in chapter 12. This is the last section 12 and I'm just going to send it all the way to the end of the book. It's a major pivot because what Paul says is he stops and he says therefore in 12:1. He says I appeal to you brothers and sisters by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, what he's saying here is I'm a p- therefore and you know what that is therefore it's asking you to look backwards. Therefore, I appeal to you by the mercies. What are his mercies? The first 11 chapters. The mercies, all the indicatives. This is what God is, and this is what God has done for us. This is who we are now in Christ. So based upon all that he's done, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Uh, chapter 12, 13, 14, and through 15 are very practical. They're very ethical They're teaching us how to live, but they're not teaching us how to live so that God might love you. They're teaching us how to live because of what God has already done for us. The gospel isn't a prize we're striving for. The gospel is fuel in your tank as you meditate, as you consider it, as you think about all that he's done. It's going to motivate you to live in a way that is profound. And so that's what we're going to see in chapter 12 He's going to change the, what does this transformation look like in your life? Well, it's going to look like in the way you deal with people. You're going to begin walking in love, forgiveness, sacrifice amidst one another in the body of Christ. In chapter 13, it changes the way you look at the government. You begin to obey the government because you know God's sovereign over it. And he's appointed that government as an authority. It changes the way you handle people that are difficult. In chapter 14, you have the strong and you have the weak Christian debate, remember? Remember? Uh, If you've ever read that before, the weak Christians tend to be, uh, most think that they're the Jewish Christians who live by certain uh, dietary restrictions and other scruples that the Gentile Christians didn't worry about. And the cultural tension between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians as it erupted over the issues of food and worship kind of thing, he's going to give us instruction on how to live in that way. Uh, Not only that, but he also, it changes the way we look at the world. The way we look at the world. You know, Paul, in 15, that's where he gets to the section of saying, I want you to help me take the gospel to Spain. Because Paul feels a a burden. Because if this gospel is true, and it's, it's the answer to our greatest problems, it gives us hope in this life, it untangles the theological difficulties we have, The world needs to know it. It's a missional book. It it takes us outside of our own little comfort zone and our own little community and says, look beyond the borders of your own life. Look to the world. We've got to take the gospel to the world, so it's going to have a a missionary push. This is really, what Paul's doing is he's circling back to the beginning. You know, we didn't read this passage, but in chapter 1, verse 5, we read these words. He says, "Um, I have it. Uh, He says, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. That's what he says in chapter 1, chapter 16, he says this. He says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, It has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about obedience of faith. The same phrasing. Obedience of faith of the nations in chapter 16 and in chapter 1. He's going back that the gospel will transform us, not just in how we look at one another, how we look at the government, how we look at those whom we struggle, but also how we look at the world. And that's why Danny and Lauren are doing what they're doing. They're taking the gospel For the sake of bringing the obedience to the faith of the nations. Stephen Christie and so many others. So the book of Romans is classic. You've seen a little bit of the nuts and bolts. That was the first step we took. Who? Paul wrote it, right? From Greece, probably around 57 AD. For the purposes of driving deeper in the gospel. We looked at the nature of the gospel in chapter 1, 16 and 17. Just quickly, the gospel saves. He reveals a righteousness which we have to embrace by faith. If you're here and you have not embraced that by faith, it stands as a beautiful diamond that you do not enjoy. It is by faith that we enjoy these promises. And and then Paul unfolds it. The gospel answers our greatest problem. The gospel gives hope to this life. The gospel entangles the theological difficulties that we face, and the gospel will change us. So join me, if you will, this week. This is, I know it was probably more academic than you desire, but I just wanted to lay the groundwork for you as, as to what we're covering in each section. Read with me the entire book this week, at least one time, and, and then what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first uh, four chapters over the next 12 or 14 weeks, I, I know a lot of people like, oh my, how long is it going to take them to get through the book of Romans? You know, Donald Gray Barnhouse it took him ten years. It won't take me that long. Uh, it, 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 you, you can really dive down a bunch of shafts, and, and there are there's gold down there. I'm going to try to take the passages a little bigger because I don't want to lose the theme and the argument that Paul's making through there. So it'll only take us ten or twelve weeks to get through these first four chapters, but. Prepare your soul, pray for me and, and pray for one another in here that the word of God would be instructive, that we might like Augustine and like Luther and like John Wesley and so many others who have been impacted. Uh, let this be a season that our eyes are open to the glory of Christ. You know, one thing that Luther said that I didn't quote, he says this, the whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressible sweet in greater love. The passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. So let's, let's pray that God would use his word through the Apostle Paul to, to let us see more clearly all that will be ours one day. Let's take a minute now just ask God for grace. Maybe you don't desire to read the word. Ask him for a hunger to read the word. Maybe you don't understand the word. Ask for clarity to understand the word. And and maybe pray too for those around you, those just right now around you, that God would open their minds to the greatness of his word in this beautiful epistle. And then I'll close this in just a moment.